If you haven't, please open your Bibles in Psalm 2. This is our text for today. I have entitled this message, Surrender to the King or Else. <laughs> Surrender to the King or Else. I believe this, the message of this portion of the Scriptures is very relevant, relevant, relevant for today. But to be more precise, I do also believe that it has always been relevant because the world has always, since the fall, resisted to submit to God as King. The history of the world is just a series of consecutive instances of man rebellion against God. One of the ways we see the rebellion against God today is manifested in the streets. There are many people in the world today protesting for different causes. They are loud, they are angry, and they are doing whatever they want. They are destroying, burning, looting. Many of them are violent. It seems to me that all they want to do is to destroy society as it is. And for many of them, the cause doesn't really matter. It's just an excuse to satisfy their sinful desires to rebel. And this rebellion is always, ultimately, against God. And the rebellion doesn't happen only in the streets. It happens also among the rulers of the nations. They are not interested in being ministers of God to protect the people, to do good for them. It is evident that many of them come with an agenda to implement new laws that are against everything that is good, honorable, and righteous according to God's law. They hate what is right, and they love what is evil. They call evil good, and good evil. If you pay too much attention to the news, as I do sometimes, what they're doing can, affect, can have an effect on you, a negative effect. In my case, I have to confess that many times, what, I, what they do makes me angry. It bothers me to see the lack of common sense and the abundance of their irrationality. I also confess that all this rebellion makes me a little bit concerned and worried and afraid. Not really afraid or concerned about myself, but about my children, mainly. I ask myself, in what kind of world are they going to live? Am I preparing them well for it? I mean, the world is going crazy. In my perspective, it is crazier than ever. It is getting worse and worse and in a way that I have never seen before. And the media has played a big role in all of this. this is a, there is a con constant supply of news that misinformed that seeks to distribute propaganda on TV, radio, and especially on internet and social media. I know that many of you may feel the same way I do, at least once in a while. You may be afraid, angry, concerned, or yes, sad. So if you're experiencing any of these emotions, this message is for you. Is there going to be an end to all of this chaos? And if there is, how is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? What is going to happen exactly? Who is going to make it happen? The answers to all these questions are contained in Psalm 2. We are going to divide our passage in three main points. Point number one, a rebellious plot in verses one to three. 
Point number two, a serious response in verses 4 to 9. And point number three, a gracious offer in verses 10 to 12. A rebellious plot, a serious response, and a gracious offer. So point number one, a rebellious plot. Look at verse 1. It says, Why are the nations in an, in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Our text this morning starts with a question. This is a rhetorical question. A question whose purpose is not to get an answer, but to produce an effect. The psalmist is not trying to find out the reason why the nations think the way they think and do what they do. The purpose of this question is to express a sense of amazement and even anger at their anger. We read that the nations are in uproar. The verb for this word can also be translated as rage. It communicates the idea of restlessness. Now the second part of verse 1 says that the peoples are devising a vain thing. They're plotting a vain thing. So when you put these two verses together, uproar and devising, you understand what this group, made up of nations and the peoples, is really doing. They're plotting a rebellion. They're conspiring a rebellion. The nations and the peoples are rebels. They are rebels. And what they're planning is described as, as a vain thing. An empty thing, something futile. Something of little, of little or no value. Something of no importance, of significance. Something useless. They're loud, they're angry, and they're getting ready to manifest their anger through rebellion, through anarchy, through a violent revolution, through chaos. And this is the story of the world since the fall. It has always been this way. There's nothing new under the sun. Verse 2 gives us more information about these rebels. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. Now we know that the leaders are the kings of the earth and the rulers. And the purpose is to take their stand and take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. The word Lord here is a reference to God the Father. And the word anointed to God the Son. The Hebrew word for anointed is really Messiah. So this is a reference to Christ. There is not, this is none other than Jesus Christ. Acts 4, 24-27 apply verses 1 and 2 of this song to Jesus. And Hebrews 1, 5 and 5, 5 apply verse 7 to Jesus. But what do these rebels say against the first two members of the Trinity? What do they actually say? Look at verse 3. Let us tear the feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. Very, very interesting. What are they saying this? What do they mean by it? Listen to what Romans 1, 18, 19 says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. I am sure that you have heard atheists saying something like the following. Oh, I would believe in God, but there is no evidence of Him. But we know this is not true. Every single human being 
that have ever existed knows there is a God. There is no such thing as atheists. God doesn't believe in atheists, and nor should we. The reason why they deny God's existence is not intellectual but moral. They don't want to acknowledge there is a God because they know the implications. They know that if they accept the God of the Bible, they need to obey the God of the Bible. And the problem is that they love their sin. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's rebellion, hiding behind a wrong view of intellectualism. And the same is true for all those who reject the God of the Bible. You have heard them. I believe in God. I just don't follow any religion or sacred book. Everybody should follow what they think is best for them. That's rebellion. That's rebellion behind a wrong view of tolerance. Let's remember that every single human being that has ever existed is born with a conscience. Everyone can tell right from wrong. Even little children. The law of God is written, is written in our hearts. But men hate the law of God because they love their sin. They are born with a sinful tendency. John 3.19 says this. This is the judgment. That the light, Christ, has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds, deeds were evil. For their deeds were evil. Jesus said in John 7.7. 7, the world cannot hate you. But it hates me, because as I testify of it, that, the, that, its deal, it did, that its deeds are evil. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Now let's go back to Psalm 2, verse 3. Now we are ready to answer why they are saying, let us tear their, tear their feathers apart and cast away their course from us. Here's why. Listen. The nations of the world, its people, and its leaders, see the ruling of God through His law like being tied with bonds and ropes. They feel restrained from doing whatever they want to do. They want freedom to sin with no consequences of judgment. They see the authority by God or of God as bondage. And this is why they, came, they come together to plot a strategy to break free of the law of God. They want to destroy that which, from their perspective, is keeping them in bondage. This is so sad. This is so tragic. Instead of seeing God as He truly is, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, they see Him as a cruel dictator. Instead of seeing the law of God as it truly is, holy and righteous and good, they see it as a rigid bandage. They don't see that the yoke of Christ is easy and that His burden is light, as we heard last Sunday. They see quite the opposite, that the yoke of Christ is hard and that His burden is heavy. And so, they want to overthrow His ruling. Now, as a sign, we must remember that if if it were not for the grace of God who opened our eyes to see the truth, we would be among the rebels plotting against God. Now, how does God respond to the plotting of these rebels? The answer for this question leads us to our second point this morning. 
a serious response, a serious response in verses 4 to 9. How does God answer to rebels that are trying to get rid of His ruling? Is He afraid? Is He concerned? Does He feel threatened? Not at all. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. This is how the Lord responds to rebels. This is a description of the attitude of God toward worldly power. And I believe that God the Father is in view in verses 5 and 6. Notice that He sits in the heavens. He is sitting on His throne. He doesn't even stand up. He reigns over the earth from heaven. He is the King. There is nothing that happens on earth that represents a problem to God. He is in heaven... And He is ruling. Whatever evil, chaos, disobedience, or anarchy against Him and His anointed that happens down here on earth has no negative impact up there in heaven. Even if all the nations will come together with all their power and anger and plans to take a stand against God together, He is in no way intimidated or concern. That's why God's response is to laugh and to mock. It reminds me of the builders of the Tower of Babel. They wanted to build for themselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. I believe this is a form of mockery. The Lord confused their language so they would not understand each other, and He scattered them from there over all the earth. And they stopped building the city. That was the end of their little rebellion. God laughs and mocks at rebels. By the way, this is the only place in the Bible where God is said to laugh. This is like God asking them, Are you kidding me? You can't be serious. <laughs> Here's an illustration. Imagine if we could be able to hear, with the help of a special device, an army of ten little ants. Picture them talking to each other, devising a plot against you. Would you feel threatened? <laughs> On average, a human being is 2,000 times bigger than an ant. So naturally, your reaction to a group of ten little ants that are planning to start a rebellion against you would be to laugh and to make fun of them, right? You would say something like this, Oh, how cute. (laughs) Why would you react this way? Because you know that you have the power to crush them with no effort if you wanted to. Unfortunately for the rebels, God stops laughing and mocking. The teasing and the amusement of God turns into anger. Verse 5. Verse 5. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying... Notice that it is what He says to the the rebels that terrifies them. Verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain... This is the essence of the answer from God. This verse and the following ones 
describe the actions of God toward worldly power. The speech begins with a strong contrast. But as for me, God is in effect saying, they may lose us in church, but as for me, I will do this. This announcement also states that, in, that the installation of this divine king is in Mount Sinai. Sinai was a unique mountain, set apart for the worship and service of the Lord, which is why it is designed, designated as holy. Notice that God talks as He has already installed His King. Even though, as we will see, this is a future event. I believe He speaks this way in order to express that it is good as done. Pretty much like when you ask a favor to a person that you trust, and he or she replies, You got it. It's done. God's King will be enthroned on earth, specifically on the most prominent hill in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. This is a reference to the second coming of Christ. When he comes back to establish his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. And so, this is prophetic. This is for the future. Now notice that it is God the Son, Jesus Christ, the one who speaks from verses 7 to 9. Verse 7 says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. When we read the term today, we usually think of an event that takes place at one point in time. And when we read the term begotten, we normally understand it as the origin, as the origin or conception of a person. But Christ, being divine, had no beginning, since he's a timeless, as timeless as God himself. Some assume that begotten refers to the conception of the human Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary. But Matthew 1.20 attributes the conception of the incarnate Christ to the Holy Spirit, not God the Father. A better explanation of this text is to say that the begotten expresses the idea of a son being like his father. A commentator said that the title Son of God, when applied to Christ in the scriptures, seems to always speak of his essential deity and absolute equality with God. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' time understood this. I'm sure you remember this. Five, John 5.18 5, says that they wanted to kill him by stoning him. They accused him of blasphemy because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. There is a similar idea in our culture. You all have heard the saying, like father, like son. This is, and this is said when the character of a, of a behavior of a son resembles that of his father. So the begotten mentioned in verse 7 has to do with Christ sharing the same essence as the father. Now notice verse 8, because it speaks in a future sense. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. There is certainty in these words. There is certainty about this promise that God gives to Christ. He will surely give the nations to Him as inheritance. The very ends of the earth speaks about this extension of this inheritance. It's a, it is a reference to the people who live in the ends of the earth, of the earth. And this 
personally brings joy to me since I come from the end of the earth. <laughs> Some people believe that the meaning of the word Chile is end of the earth. It makes a lot of sense. There's nothing after Chile down there in the south. <laughs> so it gives me great joy to know that Christ's future kingdom will reach even down there. The kingdom will extend through all the lands to the most remote regions. But how will Christ deal with rebels? How will Christ deal with rebels? Look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This passage is quoted in the book of Revelation a few times. It is quoted in 226 to 27, 12, 5, and 19:15. In the millennial kingdom, Jesus will rule the nations while He is physically present on earth. The nations will obey and submit to His rule. But in Zechariah 14 points out, whenever a nation does not act as they should, there is punishment. I think that Zechariah 14.17 is a very, very interesting passage. This is what it says, Zechariah 14.17. And it will be that whichever of the families of earth of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. How about that? This is how Christ will rule in his future earthly kingdom. To those who refuse to worship him, he will say, no rain for you. Surrender to the king or else. The two verbs, you shall break them and you shall shatter them, indicate that Christ will exercise his dominion with power. The means by which the king will establish his reign is expressed with two expressions. The first is with an iron rod. The rod most likely refers to the scepter of the king, which represents or represented authority. He will rule with sovereign authority. The word iron indicates the strength of the dominion. In other words, it is going to be very easy and quick for the king to put down any rebellion that arises in his future reign. It will be as easy and quick as breaking a clay pot. All you need to do to break it is to let, let it fall to the ground. And it will broke into pieces. That's why we don't let little children to play with those. <laughs> they can break easily and quickly. They are fragile. That's the picture here. That's how the Lord will crush rebels in the future. But this song doesn't, start, doesn't stop here. We have seen what the Lord will do with rebels. He will destroy them. He's a God of wrath and judgment. Right? But he's also a God of grace and patience. Isn't he? So he, in the words of the psalmist, makes an appeal. He makes an offer to the rebels. A gracious offer. This gracious offer is made in the remaining verses. Verses 10 to 12. And this offer is divided in five commands, I believe. Five imperatives that the rebel must pay heed to. If they don't want to be destroyed by this coming king. Verse, says, verse 10 says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. This is the first command. This is the first thing the kings need to do. To show discernment. 
Now therefore, now in light of what you just heard about the king's response to your rebellion, show discernment, be wise, act prudently, make the right choices. The implication is that the kings are acting foolishly. What are you doing? You're supposed to be wise of the leaders of your nations. Be wise. Second command. Take warning, O judges of the earth. The idea here is to receive instruction and to learn discipline. Judges are known to have knowledge and education. But they need training even in the basic things of life. In verse 11, we see the third command. Worship the Lord with reverence. Now the psalmist explains that being wise means to become a true worshiper, worshiper of the living God. The word for Lord is here is Yahweh. This is a call to worship Yahweh, the only true God of the Bible. The holy name is emphasized here. The actual word for worship is to serve. The verb serve has the religious sense of worshiping God and obeying His commandments. This service was to be performed with fear, a term that includes reverence and adoration. Now the fourth command is to rejoice, which means to give a shout of joy. It is okay to manifest outward happiness, but this is to be done with trembling. Make sure that the way you rejoice honors the Lord, because this is about worshiping the Holy God. In verse 12, we have the fifth command. Do homage homage to the Son. Another translation of this can be kiss the Son. To kiss the Son. To kiss the Son is a symbolic act. Conquer and submissive kings will bow before the victor and give homage in this way. This is a call for alliance and submission. There is one last warning for rebels. They are to submit to God, to the Son, that He not become angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. A call to unbelievers to make peace with God must always have a sense of urgency. Soon, they need to be reminded that the wrath of God can be manifested anytime against them. Therefore, they must act quickly. Finally, we might be wondering, is there anything in this psalm for believers? Yes, there is. Look at the last phrase. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. How happy are those who have put their trust in the Lord for safety and security. Here's the conclusion. If you haven't paid attention, listen to this helpful summary of the psalm. It is wise to submit to the authority of the Messiah, because God has decreed that He will put down all rebellion and rule the world. The psalm's clear application for, is for people to believe the Word of God and submit to the authority of His Son before He comes to judge the world and establish His reign. This psalm is a warning for people in the world who foolishly try to throw off the authority of the Lord's anointed King. For by doing so, they are actually rebelling against God. For believers, the message is one of great 
Comfort. Comfort. The antagonism in the world to God in general, and to Christianity specifically, will end. The outcome is not in question, even though it seems it is. Believers, when believers, they can be strengthened, strengthened in their faith in God's plan that Christ shall come to put down all wickedness and rule the world. Now, there's a second application for us believers. Just as the psalmist exhorted people to submit to the, to the Messiah, so too Christians should warn the world not to act foolishly, but to submit to Christ and escape the wrath to come. My friend, if you're not a Christian, I plead with you now. I beg you, surrender to the King. Surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. This King will come and He will destroy you quickly and easily if you keep refusing to bow the knee to Him. Therefore be wise. Be warned, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, and kiss the Son in grateful and loving submission. Repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ for salvation. As somebody so beautifully put it, the hands He holds forth for you to kiss are hands that were pierced by nails when He was crucified in the place of sinners like you. One day Christ will come as the great judge of all. On that day the wicked will be punished. But today is the day of His grace. Be blessed as you take refuge in Him. Let us pray. Lord, we ask you that you put down rebellion even in our hearts. Thank you for providing a king for us. We thank you because you have already solved the rebellion of this world. Father, we praise you for sending your son to be Messiah. Help us to serve you, Lord, with reverence and with rejoicing. Thank you for giving refuge to those who trust in you. And we say with the Apostle John, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.